Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. It's April 20th, 1828, and another remarkable event is about to be uncovered by Aria, Rebecca, and Ali. The Retrospectors. So it was on this day that French adventurer René Caillé arrived at the legendary city of Timbuktu after an arduous year-long journey. And what did he make of this fabled city of riches? I'll let him tell it. I looked around and found that the sight before me did not answer my expectations. I had formed a totally different idea of the grandeur and wealth of Timbuktu. The city presented at first view nothing but a mass of ill-looking houses built of earth, possibly the most disappointed TripAdvisor review of all time. And the reason for his disappointment is that Timbuktu was founded by Tuareg nomads in the 12th century and within 200 years had become an immensely wealthy city that was at the centre of really important trading routes for salt and gold that went through the region. And through writers such as Leo Africanus, tales reached Europe of its immense riches, which really stoked this acute curiosity on the part of European explorers in particular. And this mystery was enhanced by its inaccessibility and the fact that many European expeditions had perished prior to Kaye's arrival. Yeah, I mean, they still had salt in 1828. It was the gold that he was disappointed by the lack of, I think. <laughs> right. I mean, it was this sort of mythical status across Europe, really, the um, romance and the political and scholarly achievements of Timbuktu since the 13th century. And as you say, no one from Europe had really been able to verify these claims. Because mm. Europeans travelling into the interior of Africa was difficult. There were no ports, obviously, in the middle. Uh, there were tropical diseases. There were native people who were not very keen on being colonised. There were Muslims who were not very keen on Christians. And there was no technological advantage to being a European once you'd used up your bullets. You know, what did you have? Um, mm. So it was difficult to traverse all the way through to Timbuktu. And so it had... This mythical status that weirdly, actually, despite the fact we now know that Timbuktu is in Mali and the roofs aren't covered in gold anymore, still persists. Is Timbuktu a real place is still very much a live question on Google, I was surprised to see. So the fascination still endures from this period. Yeah, the Oxford English Dictionary puts it as the most distant place imaginable. So, you know, the idea is that Timbuktu in our common parlance, is the furthest place on earth from anywhere else on earth, yeah. even, you know, if you're next door in neighbouring village in Mali. Yeah, because crucially, until the early 1800s, Westerners actually didn't know where the city was. There were people who claimed to have been, there was an American sailor called Robert Adams, who was enslaved in North Africa for several years. He said he visited in 1812, but the account was disputed, obviously, because it's not like anybody in Europe knew anyone in Timbuktu that they could check with. And it's kind of a clue to the fact that by the 1800s, Timbuktu had majorly fallen off. So so the account that had given Timbuktu its great fame in Europe was, as you said, Arian, by a guy called Leo Africanus. He was a Spanish-born Moroccan scholar who was captured by Spaniards at sea. He ended up converting to Christianity and he wrote this book called Description of Africa about all the travels he had undertaken in Africa, including to Timbuktu. It was published in Venice in 1550 and it first appeared in English in 1600. But ironically, it was at this point that the city was beginning a long and pretty depressing decline. It had been captured in 1591 by Moroccan mercenaries 
revolutionaries. And that sparked 300 years of political instability, economic sidelining and the repression of the city's famous scholarly traditions. Lots of intellectuals were executed under the new rulers. So by the time Calle showed up, it was a shadow of its former self. In its glory days, it had a population of about 100,000. But by the time Calle arrived, that was down to 12,000. So what was he doing there? Well, partly he was an intrepid sort of fella anyway, grew up loving Robinson Crusoe and travel and maps and all the rest of it. But also there was a financial reward which was being offered by the Geographical Society in Paris, 10,000 francs to any European that could travel to Timbuktu and return alive with an account of the city. He didn't tell them before he was going, well, I'm going to try and get this award. He just went, and I think that's part of the reason he was successful. He didn't make a big song and dance about being French, that's for sure. Yeah, and also he didn't lead a big party. Instead, his plan was to travel alone and be disguised as a Muslim. And this was explicitly to try to get over some of the difficulties experienced by earlier expeditions. <laughs> some of the people that got massacred. <laughs> well, exactly. <laughs> Difficulty is a soft word, isn't it? Two other Europeans had already beaten him to it. Crucially, Kaye was the first person to make it back from Timbuktu. There'd been a Scottish explorer called called Mungo Park, who's believed to have made it in 1805 as part of his goal, which was to be the first European to chart the Niger River. But he drowned in what's now modern-day Nigeria during an attack by hostile natives without being able to document his journey properly. So we don't know. And Mm. then the first person who we do know actually made it was Alexander Gordon Lang, who arrived in August 1826. He was also trying to find the source of the Niger, actually. He wasn't looking for Timbuktu specifically. Um, But he was murdered just after he left the city, probably by Tuareg assassins who wrapped a turban around his neck and then pulled on both ends, which was their chosen means of assassination. And actually, we only know about him because of Kaye. Kaye got told about him Mm. when he was in Timbuktu, which must have been a bit of a warning to watch your back on the way out. Kaye then persuaded a French governor to help finance his stay uh, of eight months with nomadic people in the Brakna region in southern Mauritania. And that's where he learnt Arabic. So, I mean, even that was astonishing to me that he went there speaking absolutely no Arabic, planning to pose as a Muslim. And eight months Slater, he was like, yep, ready to go, here I go. (laughs) So he had two stories. So initially, when he was spending that eight-month period with Moors, he said he was the son of a wealthy French family, so he wasn't pretending not to be French. And upon reading the Quran in a French translation, he'd been intensely overcome by its truths, and now his father had died, and he'd come into this money, and he wanted to go to Senegal to learn their wise customs. All very clever and very flattering, actually, isn't it? And Mm. then, when it suited him, he changed story. Again, of course, still pretending he was Muslim, but travelling undercover as a poor Egyptian named Abdallah, explaining to people then that he'd been kidnapped by the French and he was merely attempting to return home to Egypt. Yeah, and so crucially different from the British explorers who had gone before him, he wasn't travelling with dozens of, you know, African porters carrying all his things and bearing him on a sedan chair. He joined a caravan of traders who were heading for Timbuktu with his cover story. The journey took a year and it crossed modern-day Sierra Leone, the Gambia and Ivory Coast. But the reason it took so long was that he ended up spending five months in Tierme in modern-day Ivory Coast because he got scurvy. All of that makes you reflect on his disappointment that he found and he he documented it further he said after I took a turn around the city I found it neither so large nor so populous as I had expected and he goes on to then document what the streets looked like and how there were camels about the place and he says in a word everything had a dull appearance and you can imagine he'd 
taken this year-long trek to get here. He'd risked life and limb and he'd learned Arabic for the purpose and he, he was expecting a city of gold and he gets there and he finds this sort of dusty little town. No wonder he was like, actually, I think I might just turn around and get out of here as soon as I can. He actually compared it unfavourably to another Malian city that he'd passed through, which was called Jene, which obviously didn't hold this mythical status, but that he found to be actually very bustling and cosmopolitan in comparison to a very sleepy Timbuktu. I mean, there would have been a question as to whether or not the society would have believed that he'd actually been there because, of course, there were no Mm. photographs and he had no assistance. And they'd actually laid out the rules in advance. The society demands a manuscript narrative with a geographical map founded upon celestial observations, the author shall endeavour to study the country with reference to the principal points of its physical geography, he shall observe the nature of the soil, the depth of the wells, their temperature and that of their sources, the width and rapidity of the rivers, the colour and the cleanness of their waters, and the productions of the countries which they irrigate. He shall make remarks upon the climates and determine in various places, if possible, the declination and inclination of the magnetic needle. He shall strive to observe the different breeds of animals and to make some collections in natural history such as fossils, shells and plants. Like, he really had to prove that he'd been there. It's quite difficult to carry out while your cover story is that you're a humble Egyptian who's just trying to get home. How are you going to be taking the temperature of the well? (laughs) (laughs) And yet his story was like, yeah, disappointing soil colour, disappointing (laughs) level of cleanliness in the rivers, (laughs) disappointing magnetic points of my compass. (laughs) And they believed him. And he was awarded the Legion of Honour and a pension by the French government. And actually, I do wonder whether it was in the end quite convenient that his conclusions of nothing to see here fed into a different narrative which was well there's no problem with us colonizing africa then because they're not a civilized place like we'll bring Mm. civilization to them we'll bring french society to them which ultimately was their goal because by 1893 timbuktu was french just one other quick thing it's actually still a very hard to get to place. And I read this uh, account by Richard Trillo, who's the author of Rough Guide to West Africa. And he said, for one thing, there's still no tarmac road to take travellers there in any case. Mm. But also he said, you can get anywhere, but Timbuktu is still very hard to get to. And he went there for the first time when he hitchhiked from Hampshire in 1977 at age 21. I mean, the Hampshire tamale bit is fairly straightforward, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah. Tomorrow. The headline in the Daily Mail was London Surgeon's Photo of the Monster. Love the show? Support the show. Patreon.com slash retrospectors. Part of the ACAS Creator Network.